Hey, Matt. How you doing? Hey, John. I'm awesome. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for taking the time to do this today. For sure. Um, you know, I think it might be fun to start with like how you and I know one another and like how our relationship started because I think it's like pretty interesting genesis. Yeah, 100%. Um, so the first time I remember meeting you was at Mission U Orientation, yeah. which Mission U uh, is this awesome program that we're both a part of. Yep. Um, and, you know, the first thing I remember about you and the first conversation that really stuck in my in my head was sitting in the front row waiting for, might have been Adam Braun even to speak. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was at that place on Alabama Street. Right? It was. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and we just started by talking and, and, and we had this particular topic and I'm trying to, it was empathy. We were sharing stories. Yeah. Yeah. And that just, I don't know, cemented, uh, uh, a good feeling about you. Yeah. And, uh, and I dug it ever since and we hung out so many times since. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wanted, I wanted to bring you in particular here today cause I think you have a super interesting story. Um, and I think like, you know, a lot of people could learn and just find a lot of intrigue in like your experiences and like what you've gotten out of all that. Um, so why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about like, you know, what was it like growing up for you? Where'd you grow up? Uh, like your family and, and stuff like that. Sure, man. Yeah. I was born in Metro Detroit, okay. uh, working class, blue collar suburb, Fraser, Michigan. Uh, if you've seen the movie Eight Mile, I grew up on Thirteen Mile. Okay, uh, so so right in the right in the heart of Detroit, and very proud of that uh, of being from Michigan. Uh, I've been around the country a few times, and I've always heard from several different states that Michigan are good people. Folks from Michigan are good people, so that makes me always feel feel good. But I grew up, yeah, in a working class family. My dad was a machinist. Um, he worked on interesting things, uh, built uh, the, some of the first hydrogen fuel cells for uh, cars at the company he worked for. Um, yeah. yeah, he was a machinist, so it was, it, it was a working class, but he was also injured a lot and uh, health problems and heart attacks. From and, working in the factory? or um, Well, the heart attacks were from smoking and, and poor diet and all that, but yeah. the working in the factory, he... he, he jerked up his back really bad, yeah. uh, lifting a piece of material one time. And that just started the, the domino effect of, uh, I don't know, six or seven back surgeries and neck surgeries. Oh, wow. Uh, so he was, you know, I have a good memory of three to four years where he was just laid up on the couch, like unable to move, yeah. uh, which was interesting. But, um, but yeah, I was the second born of four kids, uh, three boys and a girl was the youngest. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so coming up, we, you know, we were always uh, fed good, and we always had sneakers to play basketball. You know, we weren't rich, but our family, my mom and my dad, they took care of us. You know, it might have been on credit, but they made it yeah. happen for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was a good childhood. You know, my, my parents divorced when I was 14 or 15, so mm -hmm. that set the stage for freedom, John, and kind of the outlook that I took on life and the, the, just the ability to explore the world. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that when you say an avenue to freedom? Yeah, totally. So all of a sudden I was a teenager and my dad wasn't in the house anymore and my mom went back to work. So that meant she would get up at four in the morning for work. She'd go to a warehouse, a food warehouse, and she would she was an order picker at a food warehouse at her first job uh, from the divorce and not working after, you know, 12 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that just gave me a lot of freedom. I didn't have a, a curfew anymore, you know, essentially. Yeah. Well, uh, you're, so your parents were like preoccupied basically. And they you, were, you guys were at the age where you could kind of like do your own thing. Well, that's right. My older brother had gone away to Michigan State University at this point. So I was the oldest male in the house. So uh, in some way, I, I guess I took that role and I kind of set the rules for myself. Yeah. Um, and, and that just allowed me to be out all night and just walking around the streets of Fraser, Michigan <laughs> that no kid probably should be out at three or 4 a.m. <laughs> um, but it just allowed that. And, and I, I always made friends with different groups of people. So I was, I played basketball and I was, I was pretty good, but, um, I a big guy I'm a big guy, six, six, seven, six, six, uh, six, six, five. I listed six, myself a six, seven in high school, but yeah, no, I'm six, five <laughs> you straight beef up. up those numbers I had to beef up the numbers. They let you set your own height. So yeah, I had a couple inches to yeah. intimidate, but it was a lie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I was a big guy and, uh, yeah, just hung out with a lot of different people. The, yeah. uh, burnouts, if you will, in my day, that's what they called them, okay. you know, and, and the druggies and, you know, I, I just had... I just got along with everyone, and I always loved exploring what everyone else had going on. Yeah. And that just kind of laid the foundation. Gotcha. And yeah. that was kind of a result of you having that freedom after your parents. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It just allowed me to get out and roam a little bit and learn about life a little bit. And I was a good kid. You know, I, I, did, yeah. I, I was. I was a good kid of the group. You know, all my friends started drinking in eighth grade. That wasn't me. Yeah. Um, I would drive them <laughs> home before I had a license because I was the only sober one. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I... But then I, but then I dipped into that fun life of, yeah. of partying and, yeah. and all that. Yeah. But, um, you know, you talked about basketball a little bit, like, you know, that your experience playing basketball kind of afforded you, um, you know, educational opportunities, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It, it allowed me to go to college for free. I yeah. was broke and I had no college plans. Um, <clears throat> what year was this? This is 1995. Okay. I graduated high, Fraser High School in 1995. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, and my coach... Marshall Wandre, who is still a mentor in my mind, um, he's my high school coach, and then I coached with him after high school. But he worked very hard to get me a college scholarship to Michigan Christian College, yeah. uh, this private, small Christian school, which was uh, a very interesting experience because I was locked in, literally locked in every single night uh, into our dorms with a bed check and certain rules that oh, we had wow. to abide by. Yeah, <laughs> not your typical college experience, at least how we think about it today. Not how I thought about it. Not what my buddy, you know, all my buddies were going to Central Michigan and Michigan State and they're partying and yeah. uh, I would join them on weekends, but I would have to check out and tell them I was going home to visit family and I would hop in the car and go to Central Michigan and party. Gotcha. But it was not the typical experience. It was, um, it was a good one though, because I got immersed in a culture and as I've gotten older, I've enjoyed immersing in other cultures and yeah. that's, that just was one of those immersions, one of my first immersions in, yeah. a, in a different, the Christian culture, if you will, I guess. Yeah. Well, how many students were there? 400 when 400. I, when I attended. Wow. Yeah. They've grown quite a bit, uh, since I've been there. In fact, I was on their website just looking at them the other day and they're up to, I think, uh, 2,200 or 2,500. Um, okay. But yeah, they've grown quite a bit since okay. I left. They're now called Rochester College. They're in Rochester, Michigan. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. My mom uh, went to Bennington College, Bennington. which is up in Vermont. Mm. Um, it's like a very small like arts college, basically. Um, and they probably had like, you know, five, 600 students. And I, I actually... Over the holidays, I, I went up to Vermont with my mom, and we stopped in Bennington on the way back. And I was like, "This is where you went to college? Like, this is crazy." Because it was the dorms were like, they probably had like twenty five rooms or something like that. Yeah, you know, that's how my dorms were, John. Yeah, yeah, cinder block built in the I don't know forties, fifties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, wild stuff. And you know, I went, to, I was at JW for. 
know, a year and a half or so. And like, you know, they have 11,000 students or something in the middle of uh, a big national city <laughs> and uh, just to- totally different. I was, I was shocked by that, but it's kind of cool. You were, you're part of that. Yeah, it was cool. And, uh, you know, truth be told, if I had stayed all four years there, they would have set me up with a very nice life yeah. of uh, marriage and kids and a nice job. Uh, a lot of connections at Michigan Christian College. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, that wasn't the life for so, me. So why didn't, yeah, talk about that. Why didn't, why did you I le- that path? I, le- I left after a year. Um, it, 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 for about two weeks, I was a very good Christian. For about two weeks, I, you know, we had assigned seats at chapel, and I would sing and and pray and do all the things they asked me to do with a part of full immersion. But yeah. you know, there was a point where I said, "This this probably isn't my path." Um, and I was partying a lot, so every <laughs> you know, so when basketball season season was over at Michigan Christian, um, which I got to travel during that too, that was a big a big part of just the the travel bug. I think that has bit me all through my adulthood as well as first time I hopped on a bus and got to travel to Texas for the basketball tournament, you know, yeah. and, and see uh, just a part of the country away from Michigan, uh, which was a, a very big experience. So that was the first time you left Mich- Michigan was in college. Correct. Through basketball. Through basketball on yeah. an old Greyhound bus. Yeah. 1963 <laughs> plastic seat Greyhound bus. Yeah. And it was great. It was yeah. great. I got to go to Palo Duro Canyon in Nashville. I texted you the other day that I that I played against Lipscomb. Uh, it was called yeah. David Lipscomb then. Uh, but but yeah, that was neat, you know. And and it was neat to play in front of four thousand people, you know. We were just a small school. Yeah. Uh, but our coach was very close with their coach, and um, and it afforded me that opportunity. But that being said, the end of the year, I was I was out. I said I can't live in this prison anymore. Uh, I literally didn't have a car to leave campus was impossible unless my old man picked me up yeah. and I needed more freedom at that point. So yeah. I moved back home and uh, to my mom's house and uh, coached basketball at my old high school, yeah. went to community college. I was going to be uh, automotive design. I was in that program for a, for mm-hmm. a minute. Yeah. Um, didn't work out. And then I was uh, January of 1998. Uh, I just had this flash. I just said, I'm going to go back to school. All my buddies were at Western Michigan University. So I remember I called up my buddy January of 98 and Jeff, and I, he was living up there. I said, hey, man, I'm coming next year. And I don't know how, but I'm coming. Yeah. I was broke. But um, so I, I, I found out what I had to do, and I had to take some community college classes that summer. So I did that and started Western Michigan in 98 yeah. and, uh, and graduated there four and a half years later in 2002 with an education degree. I thought I was going to be a teacher coach. Was I thought that was my path. To, and then... The thought of being in one school for 30 years, John, you know, scared the shit out of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't something that I could picture for my future, so I, I literally never taught. But, yeah. 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 And so once you finished, finished there, um, you know, uh, from the conversations I've had with you, it seems like a lot of your life between college and now, before moving to San Francisco, was like you on the road. And like you mm. kind of like moving across America and experiencing like <laughs> such different like lifestyles as you like move across the country. Um, t- tell me about that. You know. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I stayed in Detroit until 2007. Uh, I was with my now wife Erica, yeah. and and she had a great job in Michigan. She was in banking, and uh, I had a pretty good job in a, a union job at a newspaper. I was a district manager, so life wasn't bad. But one day she said to me. You, would you consider moving from Michigan? And I was like, 100. Yeah. And so she started shopping around herself for jobs in the South. She lived in Florida. Um, How old are you guys at this point? I was 29. Erica okay. was uh, 26, 27. Okay. So you guys actually spent 
the majority of your 20s in Michigan. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. We were both born and raised. I left Michigan on my 30th birthday, August okay, 31st, gotcha. uh, 2007. Gotcha. We pulled out of Michigan. Um, but yeah, we were both in Michigan, born and raised at that point, Metro Detroit. Yeah. And were you guys plant-based at this point or no? No, absolutely no, not. Yeah. No, no, absolutely not. We ate lots of meat. I ate lots of cheese every meal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. I was a different, you know, I was, I was still 6'5", but I was 240 ish pounds yeah. you know i believe I, I fluctuated between 240 250 at my heaviest 260 i broke my foot twice in one year so i, I didn't do much yeah i got fat but yeah no no not plant-based but we moved so she found a job in austin texas uh yeah. dell financial services 2007 yeah. mm -hmm. we that's when we left detroit yeah. and um we spent seven years in texas in austin which changed me fundamentally yeah uh, i worked a lot of different jobs during that period but just the life in austin the culture it wasn't Detroit, and that was exactly what I needed at that time. And yeah, yeah, the city spoke to me in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what what about it? Like, what what about you changed in that time? Mm. Yeah, I, I guess I just started um, thinking about life less as a one track. This is what I'm supposed to be. This is who I am. You know, it just made me really start to reflect on myself and and ask those questions of of who I want to be. Um, and I think that culture and being in that city afforded me that option. Whereas being in Detroit, maybe I was limited by friends and family or expectations or even the area, yeah. um, general feel. Um, yeah. Do you, it's, it's interesting how travel can impact, you know, who we become so much and really change our perspective. Mm. Do you think that that might have to do with just the change in you know what's going on around you do you think it's a function of the people you're with like you touched on that a little bit you know you being from Detroit you know I'm sure there are a lot of consistencies maybe not but I'm sure there are a lot of consistencies between like who you're with during that time mm. um, what do you think causes that change mm. high level exposure exposure to just other people yeah. Um, I think just on a very high level in other situations and, and perspective, um, which for me is kind of the underlying driver of empathy is just perspective. If mm -hmm. you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, if you can see how the people in Texas are living when you're from Detroit, but you can hear about on the news how California is or how Texas is or how the deep South is. Yeah. But until you travel to those places and say, wow, OK, you smell. You know, yeah. <laughs> you come to San Francisco, you take a big whiff, you know, yeah. then, and that's, I think the connections. Yeah, absolutely. And it's chemical at that point. Um, and, and it's just different environments. I think I'm really a proponent of, of getting out in different environments, getting, uh, into nature and, and breathing in the air and getting to elevation, breathing in the air. And I think it just, you know, we're always changing. And I think that's like a big driver of it. So travel. Yeah. It's, um, there's a good quote that I can't remember right now, but it's, Basically, like travel is the the killer of prejudice. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a Mark Twain quote or something. But yeah. it's um yeah that's and that's always high level what I found in travel. Um, I didn't get that you know just jumping to Austin. I mean Austin opened up my perspective, but there was really a, a series of events. Um, we were in Austin for seven years. And I was a chauffeur. I was a driver. You know, I did certain things. Yeah. You know, I, I wore the, I wore the. You know, when I first got to town. I sold oxygen and, and CPAP machines um, <laughs> to the those with sleep apnea. Yeah. So I was still wearing a, suit, a tie and calling on doctors and and doing that uh, that real nine to five yeah. uh, thing. Is, you were accustomed to that, right? 
I was very accustomed, but but at the same time, John, I had a union job in Michigan, a newspaper, so my standard shift was 2.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Oh, wow. And I was working essentially independently. So as long as as I got my work done, no one bothered me throughout the day. I could do whatever I want. If I finished at at 6.30, I'd go (laughs) sleep for three hours. And I was getting paid for eight no matter what because it was a union job. Right. So I always did have a problem or some sort of like square you know, peg into a round hole type of feeling when it came to nine to five yeah. and putting on the tie, which I had done yeah. um, a couple of times. But, but yeah, that was the last time in Austin. And that was kind of like, there was some moment I grew the mustache, you know, it was a joke for my 33rd birthday, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, I just grew it just why not. And it just, it was also, uh, I learned, you know, I figured later it was an expression of some kind of, um, of growth. Growth, saying you know this is my just outward at first probably outward f you to to the working world you know right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so um so you're in austin and uh you know you're your life, you, t- you take a new turn in your life. Good, we're, we're living a good life, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, and, and Erica, she's making good money. You know, we're we're going to happy hours, you know, several nights a week. We got a good friend base down there. Um, we moved several times, so we were in Austin seven years, and we moved literally once a year, um, downsizing. So we went from at first, you know, two bedrooms, um, you know, twelve hundred square feet to two to another duplex, which was a little bigger, 1400 square feet, but cheaper. And then at that point we just said, why are we moving all this shit? You know, John, we came with a, we came with a, a semi truck that moved it, pay, you know, Dell paid to move us to Austin. So we had so much stuff and this was the start of the kind of metamorphosis of possessions are rocks. And so we just started having garage sales. At our, every single place, we just have in garage sales, and we're getting rid of the bedroom. Now we don't have an extra bedroom set. Now we don't have an extra this. We don't have an extra that. Yeah. We got down to 450 square feet. Um, I was working at Texas School for the Deaf. Uh, I loved it, immersed in that culture, the deaf culture, uh, fluent in sign language, not using my voice hardly, unless I'm around my hearing friends yeah. uh, in Austin, which is great. But then I got fired. I got fired for failing a DOT drug test. Okay. You know, um, Marijuana is one of those plants that stays in your system. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's not a measure of, uh, of, uh, of um, intoxication. Right. More it is uh, what you've done <laughs> the last few weekends. And, Gosh, hey, yeah, John, yeah. I'm plant-based. You know, I, <laughs> for me, this is a, a miracle plant. And to be a school bus driver and take a rip at the end of the night, you know, was completely – I was okay with that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah getting fired um, – it was, it was the best thing that happened to me, you know, and, and that's one of those moments in life that it's all about perspective and approach because I very easily probably could have said, oh, this is catastrophic. Like Erica was saying, like, oh, what the fuck? What are we going to do now? Yeah. You know, and to me, it was nothing but a blessing. I was making, you know, 1250 uh, an hour as a state of Texas employee driving precious lives around uh, and, and just feeling like there's something more to life, John. Yeah. Um, so we get fired. Next 30 days, we sell all our things, except everything we could pack in a Scion XB, and we drive to Denver, Colorado to start a new life with our friend Steve and Eric, uh, who's a friend from Austin, and he grew up in Littleton, and uh, he agreed to put us up for like three weeks while we figured out what we want to do on the road. We just yeah. decided that we needed to hit the road and chase our wanderlust, and we had no idea where that road was going to take. Yeah. And 
it's been full of curves. Yeah. <laughs> that was 2014, January 2014. So we spent the next few years, as you mentioned earlier, like on the road, hardcore. Okay. So that's really when that started. That's when that started, like yeah. three years ago. We gotcha. went to Denver. And then, I mean, if I, were, if I were to break it, do you want me to break it down for you or no? Yeah, I mean, where let's we went? hear it. Yeah. All right. So we went <laughs> Denver, Dallas, Michigan, Wisconsin, Colorado, California, Colorado, Michigan, Sorry, I don't want to get confused here. Texas, Nevada, Michigan, Atlanta, Michigan, Texas, Tucson, California, Tucson, Austin, San Francisco. That's been wow. my trip the last three years. Wow. Yeah. And like, <laughs> roughly, roughly how long were you like in each of those places? Was mm. it like from a few days to a few months? It like, varied. When yeah. I when I count these spaces, I count that we stayed there with people that we still know. So like we spent more than just a night because there's lots to, you know, places yeah. in between that. Right. It was yeah. just a night. But, you know, Michigan, it would be a little more extended because we had family there. We lived there for five months. We bought a trailer. We put it in the back of Erica's uh, sister-in-law's house. They got a few acres. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm close with the brother-in-law and they got a couple of girls. And so we literally bought a 19-foot trailer, hauled it back there, uh, wow. set up shop for five months while we figured out where we want to go next. Yeah. And, um, and that was great. You know, we got to spend a lot of quality time. And, and, but it was, you know, John, it was um, unorthodox. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and people were, were asking, you know, what the hell are you guys doing? And, uh, we didn't have any great answers, Yeah, but do we ever? Right. Right. And it just seems like it was kind of a, a period in you guys' lives where, you know, you had been, you had been in Austin for a few years and were getting a lot of the situation, but again, you were kind of feeling, you know, maybe stale or, or like, you know, the learning curve had substantially plateaued that's right and uh you know you were just kind of up for whatever life threw at you that's right yeah, yeah we, we just opened up our arms and said uh let's do it yeah. let's do it and really the turning point for our journey when i look back we were in michigan and at this point we had when we went to denver and then back to dallas we had worked uh construction for the first time doing stadium seating yeah uh for the ncaa tournament right. uh in 2014 when it was in at the dallas cowboy stadium yeah um, so we did that transition and that work and, and went back to Michigan and we were just really, yeah, where are we set up now? Where do we go? What do we do? Who knows? And we didn't think about farming at that point, but we were staying up in the, in the mitten in Michigan, right about here. Yeah. <laughs> Erica is right in the middle of the state. Uh, yeah. Erica, uh, parents have a place up there and we were just getting our bearings and we saw this Craigslist ad for, uh, for farm interns, uh, uh, flower greenhouse intern and uh store market intern um so yeah we fired up a, uh, off an email to covio farms a centennial farm that's yeah. been in the same family since it was granted in the homestead act uh in 1874 <laughs> by president grant they still got the paperwork wow. um so it's a really and that and living so we started living and working on that farm we were there for like eight weeks and that was the turning point for us for me and and food and like wow this is going to be a part of my life somehow um just that's where the connection with food started because when you grow your own food and you eat the food that you grow, it's, it was life changing for me growing mm -hmm. up as opposed to the city where we get, you know, those, uh, those shitty foods that are transported, you know, thousands of miles. Right. So you were plant-based at that point. 
Absolutely not. No. No. Still not. Okay. S- still not. No. Okay. We, we, oh, no, I'm sorry. No, no. Excuse me, John. I got my, you know, we were absolutely yeah. plant-based by then. Okay. We went plant-based October of 2011. So yeah. our last few years in Austin, we were plant-based. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. We, Octo- literally October, I think, 11th, 2011, we saw forks over knives, and that was the turning point gotcha. for meat and dairy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, in- it's really interesting that you bring up forks and knives, too, because, you know... Uh, you know, we're going to talk more about your history of plant-based as well, but it seems, especially in the last year or 18 months mm-hmm. that the plant-based and like vegan movement has really like blown up and you're now kind of start, starting to see it like proliferate in mainstream culture. Um, and you know, media and you seeing forks and knives was like the turning point for you guys. Uh, what, what about that movie like sparked that in you guys? It was data. It was yeah. data because in the movie they have a, a, a the narrator of the movie uh, adopts this lifestyle and and so you have numbers of these people in the movie, the baseline numbers before a whole foods plant based diet and then their numbers just months after yeah. and it was astounding to me um, the cholesterol drops blood pressure drops uh, diabetes goes away don't eat medications uh, yeah. type two not yeah. type one doesn't go away yeah. but. Um, these things happen and these things happen rapidly. Weight loss. Uh, I was always 240. I always thought I was supposed to be the big kid and it turns out that's just a lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just a lie. And that's just, um, what we thought and that's okay. That's what we thought. We know this yeah. now. Um, so for me, it was once that data got in, it was tough to get out and, and I had a wedding coming up 30 days later. And so we, Eric Your and I, wedding. my wedding, Eric and I looked at each other and said, should we try this for a month? And try to look good for our wedding as good, yeah. as good as we can. And I said, yes, let's do it. And 20 pounds later, a month later, I got married and never looked back. Right. Never looked back. Yeah. So was it – so something prompted you to watch Forks and Knives to be open to the idea. Was it uh, driven by a d- desire to lose weight? Um, not um, – and to the extent that you're comfortable talking about, it, if it's anything medical related. Oh, I'm not worried about talking about anything, John. I'm okay. an open book. But no, um, the impetus was not strictly to lose weight. It was more health driven, more heart attack driven. You know, my father had several heart attacks, uh, quadruple bypass surgery. Yeah. Uh, he had that on Erica's birthday in uh, 2003. <laughs> and um, so I always thought, and he's from a family of 10 people, and, and every male in his family had died of heart disease. Or cancer. Yeah. So I just thought that was my my destiny. When I was 22 and smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and drinking six nights a week yeah. um, and eating cheese with every meal, that was my destiny. And I believed that. And I thought, that's okay. I'm just going to die early. Yeah. And because that's what every male does and that's just nothing I can do. It's in my genes. Yeah. Um, so that that underlying factor, you know, led to like watch this Forks Over Knives. I think we just had a Netflix deal and it was just one of those things, just one of those times in life you throw something on and you're not sure what it's going to be or how it could impact you, but it did. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so wild. So it was almost like, you know, you just saw it pop up on Netflix and you're like, well, this could be interesting. Like, yeah. you know, it was probably like a weeknight or something and you were just like, oh, like we're bored. Like we're <laughs> go to sleep and watch a movie or something like that. And it just ended up being something that 100%. Yeah. We were into more documentaries at that point. Yeah. Um, binge watching Dick documentaries and, and among the episodes of The Office and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah. we're also starting to do more documentaries and trying to learn about the world around us because I think that curiosity was spurred by moving to Austin and more exploration. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely surreptitious. Sur- say that for me. Surreptitious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. 
Um, so, like, I mentioned how, like, the plant-based movement has kind of, like, really blown up, especially in the last few years, um, or last, like, year or two. Um, like, what do you think that's attributed to? And, 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 uh, and like, what factors, like, play into that? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think overall it's pain. <laughs> I think I think the the um, you know when we talk about the healthcare crisis and the problem we have and that we can't afford anymore, um, the underlying driver that is pain. Everyone's sick and tired of it. Of the pills not working, the procedures not working. Um, we're just coming to that point, I think, because it's been such a condensed period of our food supply and system changing so rapidly since about 1980. You know, that's when really the chemicals were starting to be allowed into our foods. And, 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 and rapidly more and more were introduced to the point now there's you know, some tens of thousands of chemicals that are approved to be inserted into our food yeah. without overall testing one, with 100% um, safety on any of them or, or most of them. So I think the change has to do with pain and people are tired of it and, and, and they're looking for something different. So I think on top of that, with the food system changing and the reduction of more chemicals, you know, we're starting to have autoimmune disease, uh, autism, you know, these things are, are rising at such a rapid pace and everyone doesn't know why. And um, we might know why, you know, with the chemicals that have been introduced to our food system. So I think, I think the overall driver is, is going to be our dollars. I mean, that's the only control we have in this system. That's the only thing companies care about is money. Yeah. That's the only thing. So I think when you talk about consumer demand, that's going to be the change that the companies need. And it's happening. The, milk, the dairy industry is going down. Yeah. It's going down quickly. Demand is going down. Um, and that's why also you see the, the, the profilation of, of all these bio industries like supplements, whey protein. You know, that's a, yeah. great, that's a great dairy industry byproduct that they've marketized now into right. a billion-dollar industry right. because they need more incomes coming in from that same uh, failing dairy industry. And that's why dairies are now producing their own plant-based milks. And that's why Tyson is gonna, is producing now, uh, you know, clean protein. Right. Um, and they're very interested in that because they know consumer demand is going away from meat and going towards um, a more plant-based diet. And the numbers, John, are really neat. Um, I heard an interesting stat the other day. <laughs> and this kind of blew my mind because I had I would not have guessed, and I'm pretty into this stuff, and I would not have guessed this number was so low. But right now, as we've learned in our data studies at Mission U, yeah. the percentage of organics you know sold in our general marketplace is five six percent. Mm -hmm. If that number goes to sixteen percent, it will become economically not viable for Monsanto to produce food. Wow. So there's a tipping point. Yeah, you know, we talk about the market and demand, and and what shit, what's driving that? And I think it's, I think it's the pills and procedures aren't working, and people just can't afford to be sick anymore. So, yeah. so they're more open to um, breaking these chains of food addiction. You know, to me, it's addiction. We have an we have a food addiction problem. Yeah, yeah. Just like we have an opioid problem. Yeah. You know, we've now made this chemical food, and unfortunately, the chemical companies own the food companies now. You know, Monsanto was just sold to Bayer for sixty-six billion dollars. But you think about that number, it sounds high. But when you think about Monsanto produces 80% of the world's food in the end, and the food that we feed the animals, yeah. is it that high? You know, that's and they were just sold to bear a drug company. Right. You know, so 
it's very interesting. Um, and I think Monsanto is getting out, and they got out because that's what they do. They change names and they get into other other more you know interesting things when when the time is right. But I think because that shift is happening, you know, if that shift wasn't happening, there's no way they would have sold that company for that cheap. Right. Right. And uh, you know, there's kind of this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the same page with you and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I personally made a commitment to like do plant based for a period of time, mm. uh, which I've kind of like dialed back on, but it's definitely, it definitely makes up like a majority of my diet, I would say is like plant based. Mm. Um, and that just comes from education on it and learning about, you know, kind of the stuff you're talking about. But, you know, there's a, f a few conflicts that I've noticed um, around the plant-based movement. And one is kind of like this, uh, n you know, conflicting information we have um, on all the different diets out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of people say, you know, uh, like there's healthy fats and like grass-fed uh, meats and, and stuff like that, or organic and like clean meats. Uh, and the other thing is the number of people that need to be fed is just staggering. Obviously, mm. you know, global population is rising, you know, faster than, you know, we know what to do with it and how are we going to like keep all those people alive? Um, and is there, uh, you know, uh, a way to produce enough food to feed all those people? Uh, and these are two big questions, but I'm kind of just curious about what your, what your thoughts are on that. Big questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll address your second point first because yeah. it's fresh in my mind, but you know, the, how are we going to feed all these people? You know, that's a, uh, that's a very interesting, we visited square the other day yeah. and Monsanto got brought up for a second because Osei worked at Monsanto and right. we heard Steve or uh, Mike, excuse me, uh, say that, uh, well, they feed the world, they feed the country, you know, right. they're doing good. And that's the marketing line of Monsanto that they, that we need them to, to feed the world that we, we are going to need them to feed the 9 billion people, you know, by 2040 or whatever. Right. Um, that's a good story, but it's not the truth. <laughs> it's not the truth for a couple of reasons because they produce food that's nutrient deficient, you know, and that's the byproduct of, of the, of the practices that they use with number one, gly Roundup, yeah. glyphosate in Roundup. Um, it literally, basically. well, this is a, this is a product that disrupts the, the shikimate pathway in bacteria. So the human body, um, you know, we have trillions more bacteria than we have human cells, you know, and we depend on this bacteria for our immune systems to function right at, at an optimal level. So the, these bacteria, they really affect every part of our body and that includes the immune system and, and organs and all that. Um, the reason that Roundup is on our shelves at, at Home Depot and, and this is because our government has classified it as gross, generally recognized as safe. Okay. And the reason they do that is because the way it kills plant, kills weeds is it disrupts this shikimate pathway. We don't have that in our bodies. So because we don't have this pathway, it's rubber stamped, generally recognized as safe. The problem is that the things we depend on for our health and for our buzzing at 100 yeah. percent rely on this pathway to, to exist okay. and this product glyphosate disrupts this pathway and so what we're seeing is this product is abundant in our food system we can't get away from it i eat clean and i and i will test positive for glyphosate in my urine because right. that's just how ubiquitous it is in our world mm -hmm. 
Um, but what's that, what that's doing is causing leaky gut syndrome. Maybe you've heard of that. You know, that's a new diagnosis in the last 20 years. That diagnosis did not exist 20 years ago. Right. Um, and what does that mean? That like a basic. Well, that means you have your stomach. I mean, it's it's kind of wild, but in your body is pretty interesting in this way. But it has a very thin layer of cells, like half the thickness of a hair, um, that separates your stomach from the rest of your goodies. Okay. And so, so glyphosate, um, as a part of having this in our food system and in our bodies, what it does, it it allows. Um, things to pass through that barrier that normally shouldn't. Oh, gotcha. And so, so these contents of your stomach and your digestive system, they're getting outside of the places they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So that's leaky gut. It's, gotcha. it's leaking through this membrane that it's not supposed to. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so yeah, that, and that's just one small thing. I mean, we got a tangent there yeah, and I'm yeah. trying to remember the first well, two the, questions the question, that drove this. Yeah. But, the question is, you know, there's a concern um, among the consensus that without companies like Monsanto, mm. we can't feed everyone. Right. So we talk about yield, you know, and that's one of the marketing uh, points of Monsanto is that, yeah, our yields are better. And that's how they got farmers on board. Yeah. Um, more profitable, more yield, less labor needed, don't mm-hmm. pull weeds. Um, so now you now instead of having just for easy numbers, instead of having um, 1,000 one acre farms, 100 acre farms, we have 100,000 acre farms. Mm. You know, but the numbers are even bigger than that right. um, as far as number of farmers in this country. So yeah. there's been a great consolidation of farmers, of, of small farms into this mechanized machine of and in their machine, they own the seed yeah. and their seed is patented. So Monsanto. Monsanto. So you can't, as a farmer, you can't plant, replant, you can't save this seed, you can't replant it next year, which has been going on for thousands of years. That's what agriculture is and seeds, right? Yeah. Saving seed from year to year to replant and to breed. I mean, you can crossbreed plants, um, but it's different from genetically modified where it's literally like a gene gun <laughs> injecting different species like fish into apples. Yeah. Um, it's another tangent, John. I know, <laughs> but, but so when it comes to feeding the world, you look at the yields and over time, the yields plateau or go below those of organic gardening. And that's the reason because the soil gets, is killed. Yeah. You know, it's killed. Yeah. We're spraying uh, millions of pounds now of Roundup a year. And now the plants are smart. You know, the plants now don't die with Roundup and just glyphosate. Right. They've so adapted. What, they've adapted. So you may have heard of super weeds. And that's what a super weed is. A super weed is just something that Roundup doesn't kill now. Right. And that's a problem. And so what do they do? They make Roundup 2. Right. And what they, what, what's different about Roundup 2? Well, they add dicamba. You know, and this is an interesting poison, an interesting chemical that these same companies that own, you know, dicamba, they make, right. you know, they own the food, the seeds. Right. So right. very interesting. And so now they, they spray millions more pounds of dicamba, which was a, a, an active ingredient in Agent Orange. Okay. Yeah. A defoliant. It's right. a defoliant, right. you know, so they spray it all over the jungle and hit <laughs> them. And, right, right. And, um, and cause a lot of harm, but right. they're doing that still. Right. So, so the point being uh, that while... Companies like Monsanto might claim that the yields are higher. Mm-hmm. Um, not only are they having like an adverse impact on our health, but nature is reacting to all the moves that they're making. Uh, in turn, kind of like not 
supporting their claims that the yields are higher, right? Because nature is, you know, striking back. <laughs> well, that, uh, nature, nature is striking back, but no, nature will go on. You know, and, and I think, um, you know, we're at a really interesting tipping point where either, you know, nature, nature's going to be okay. You know, humans may not be, but yeah. nature's going to be just fine. So right. nature always takes back over. And, and if we start eliminating and stop using so much glyphosate and, and stop putting this in the environment, I mean, like 50 years, maybe we'll, we'll, we're talking about we'll stop being like poisoned by this, but it can happen. And I think it will happen. But so over time, you lose, you get less yield. Not only that, but your soil is is, is now depleted of anything. It can't grow life. Right. There's no crop rotation. You know, it used to be you, you plant corns, beans. You know, you, you have crop rotation, so the soil gets replenished with you know one thing gives it the soil, one thing takes, and another one gives to right. the soil. So right. it's it's very symbiotic, and we need this relationship with bacteria yeah. and soil, and, and our food is literally killing us. If you have Quaker oats, John, Roundup isn't just used to kill weeds. This is very interesting. Roundup is used as a desiccation, so a desiccant, which means dry, uh, dries things out. So if you buy Quaker oats, you're buying oats that have been uh, sprayed with Roundup about three days before harvest, so it dries it out, so the machinery doesn't get tangled up. So it dries everything out uniformly, so they can come through with the giant machinery, and, and then they bag up your oats, you know, or process it a little bit, but, but you're eating this stuff. Right. You know, we're eating this stuff. And even oats, the baseline's supposed to be good for you. I won't touch Quaker oats. I eat oats every single day. Wow. You know, because there's no washing that off. Yeah. There's no washing it off. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all... It's wild. And, you know, when, when you talk about this, uh, you know, it, it makes me bring up the theme of like values and companies. You know, mm -hmm. you, you said something earlier where you said, you know, companies really only concern is, is money. It's the bottom line. It's the only thing that matters in our in our culture. But what's interesting is like, you know, I was watching uh, there's this new series on Netflix uh, that was done by the guy who made the this documentary about Enron called The Smartest Guys in the Room. Oh. Um, but he has this new series uh, that he's doing with Netflix that's called, uh, I can't remember the name right now for some reason, but it's, it's called like Bad Money or something like that. And it's about all these kind of like big scandals that these corporations have been involved in. Um, and the first episode was about Volkswagen and about how they basically, you know, they were making these like diesel cars that yeah. were, and the big problem with diesel is like the emissions and they basically, you know, claimed to develop this, the, all these diesel cars that had much lower emissions mm -hmm. than like all the other diesel cars. Right. And it turned out, uh, you know, these, uh, these guys at West Virginia University were testing all the different Volkswagen cars and that the emissions were actually way, way higher mm. than that, than Volkswagen had stated. And it turned out that they were basically rigging the tests so that they could, uh, you know, market themselves as like having these clean diesel cars and they end up getting fined like $30 billion as a result of it. Cause they were doing this over the course of like 15 years mm. or so. And, um, it really makes me think of this discussion of values and how like good company values actually is the better play in the long term. you know, even considering the bottom line, because, you know, uh, that, that was the case for Volkswagen. Um, and I wonder how this might play out for a company like Monsanto, mm. too, you know, because, 
you know, you bring up a lot of really good points about how, you know, while, while they may be able to benefit a lot of farmers for increasing their yields and they're feeding a lot of people at a low cost, we might find out and this idea might get more pro proliferated that, you know, everyone is not that crazy about eating these foods, which are essentially like poisoning us, mm. you know, and uh, it's interesting to think about how that might play in the long run. And like you said, you know, uh, it all comes down to like where we're willing to spend our dollars on a day to day basis. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think this discussion of values is huge, you know, especially in, in the, in the context of like, uh, all these corporations have to really consider what values they're putting out in the world. 100%. Um, and I think I love the analogy with, uh, Volkswagen. <laughs> I remember reading a snippet on that and really amazing. And that exact thing, that's a perfect analogy for what happens in the food industry. That's 100% perfect. And I'll give you an example from the food industry. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest uh, makers of baby food, and this is this is really a gross example, but yeah. this is this is a fact. Um, labeled their baby food organic, and they had somebody had that tested. You know, there's this yeah. guy called the Health Ranger. He likes to he has a lab and he tests a lot of stuff. And he's it's kind of neat, but yeah. turns out it was uh, you know 30% organic. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and so that was sort of a, a switch in my mind as far as trust and values right. and and um yeah i think i think john it's it's almost impossible to take the company line and the company word when it comes to our food at face value yeah. because there's so many drivers and 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 different interests behind it not necessarily interest in making us sick but you know when you own the medicine and you own the food wouldn't it make you more money if the food made people sick that needed their medicine needed right. their, you know so there is a there is a, a full circle um here but no that and that comes back to the misinformation and what to believe you know and and i learned that uh studying under dr campbell t colin campbell um at e cornell uh the plant-based nutrition certificate and to understand the science um behind food it's ama it amazed me that it goes back decades. Um, you know, you take diabetes. Dr. Walter Kepner was salt was curing diabetes with white white rice and table sugar back in the fifties. Um, so yeah, you, you look at media and you look at marketing and corporations. Even the best, even the ones who claim to be the best, I I have a really giant grain of salt with even the ones that are the best because. I want to believe that companies want to do good. Mm -hmm. I want to believe that, but um, it's just not present in our food system enough. Yeah, and, and I hope to be part of that change. Yeah, um, and I think it's, it is shifting towards that because people do. People are more interested. I think this generation is far more interested in what's in their food because they have to be. You know, because people around them are dying and suffering. You know, when I was coming up, we just started eating these foods and we didn't yeah. have that baseline to look at and what happens in 20 years, 30 yeah. years. Too. And there's also, you know, people have a lot more role models, role models who are plant based, you know, like, sure. like in the NBA, you know, Kyrie Irving and Damian Lillard have Long been plant based. And yeah. NFL athletes, et cetera. Hockey. Yeah. I just posted one early the other day. I saw yeah. a hockey player. Yeah. Right. So because performance, John, because right. of performance and the metrics on performance and yeah. and the data that's available to the consumer now 
is infinitely greater than 1995 when I graduated high school. And maybe I was trying to make some of these same decisions. You know, it's right. now I can just go and type and the information's there. And that's where I call on doctors to stop being so willfully complicit. You know, if I can look up heart disease and I can see that there's an Ornish program for reversing heart disease and it's reimbursed by Medicare, you know, let's start there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, let's start there. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and going back to, you know, the discussion of like companies and values and how uh, in the industry there's not a lot of uh, companies holding up values as, you know, the number one thing. Are there companies that you know of that you know people should be turning to for uh, getting their produce, or is it more mm. is it more locally driven? Like it needs to be locally driven. Yeah, um, it's not. I, I wish I had a, someone I could point to and say, yeah, this is a great purveyor of local produce. That's going to depend on where you live and really what state you live. Um, you know, your access to that type of food from a local vendor is much less in Michigan than it is in California. Right. Um, that being said, I think it's going back local. You know, you, if you look at the numbers and the shifts in the market, it's going from big companies, Pepsi, Coke, to control, you know, selling our food to, to more um, smaller outfits and startups. Um, and especially with the clean protein, you know, this lab-grown meat, which, you know, we can talk about, but it, it's not any healthier. It's just without the, the death and the slaughter, which is great, yeah. which is, like, beautiful because no yeah. one needs to be eating death. Right. I mean, there's literally hormones of death, of adrenaline and fear in the meat that we eat. Um, so I love that. And so, yeah, I think it's a combination of information. It's a combination, combination of examples. Um, but really, um, pain's the driver. People are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. Yeah. And people can't afford to be sick and tired, John. People, knowing everyone's broke these days. Right. States, people, <laughs> yeah. everyone. So yeah. we can't afford this. We can't afford to pay 10000 a year to maintain type 2 diabetes right. when we could potentially just reverse it or, you know, to get you off the meds. Right, right. Just with food. Yeah. You know? But do you, you know, for anyone who might be listening to this, yeah. um, is there anything that you can personally recommend that they do to, you know, stay on top of this? Is there any, you know, we've talked about companies like Plenty and, and stuff like that. Or, uh, you know, should people turn to a resource like that? Should they go? Do they just look for their local resource? What do you sure. Think? I think there's a couple of things that people can do uh, quite actionably and very easily and measurably. Um, they could go to plantbaseddocs.org, I think it is, and find a plant-based doctor in their area. You know, if they're suffering with type 2 diabetes or heart disease or any of these uh, common diseases, but lifestyle diseases. Um, um, and I want to say there's a percentage that are gene-driven and there's nothing we can do about it, yeah. but that's that's a small percentage. Um, and overall, they're lifestyle diseases. So the first thing they can do is find support. You know, I, I heard a breast surgeon say at the plant-based nutrition support group meeting uh, a couple of years ago, she said, and she's lopping off breasts all day. And, you know, I had a friend who, was, who preemptively had her breasts removed because she tested for this positive, this gene that ran her family, breast cancer. But at the same time, she's crushing Red Bulls, you know, six Red Bulls a day, John. Yeah. So... Um, sorry, I got a tangent there because I thought about my friend, but, um, it's just, yeah, it makes me sad, but she said, you have to take responsibility for your health, right? We're not going to be here. The system will not be here for you. That's what she said, a breast surgeon in, in Metro Detroit, you know, so that, that, that's powerful for me. So I would have in the frame of mind, if I'm suffering with some of these things or I'm caretaking for people who are suffering or just want to feel better, um, that it's on us. We can't depend on the doctor to tell us how to do that because the system is not, that's not what they're there for. Yeah. yeah. So that's number one. So go to plantbaseddocs.org and find a plant-based doctor around you. And that's a great start because they will 
um, hopefully, you know, get us off the pills and the procedures. The second thing, just eat more legumes, potatoes. You know, it's, it's very tough in our, we're a very reductionist society when it comes to protein, carbs, and fats, John. Yeah. You know, that's what, what's, what's talked about and marketed to us. But yeah. life and food is not reductionist. We need the whole damn thing. We don't need just need the juice. You know, we need, we need the, the bulk of it too, the fiber and all the things that go into that, the phytonutrients. Um, you know, our food is just being redux, re reduced to these ingredients, these singular things, and we're not, we're whole. We need to be, have these whole things. Um, so I would just say, even if you can't afford organic, um, Dr. Michael Greger at nutritionfacts.org, which is another tremendous resource, um, not sponsored by industry. Yeah. He wrote how to not die. Right? How not to die. How not to die. How not to die. Yeah. And his and he's really his inspiration was his grandmother, uh, Frances Greger, who was a uh, uh, gonna die uh, in in the '60s. Greger was 12 years old, and she was sent to this doctor who put her on plants, and uh, you know she lived another 30 years. Uh, and she was she couldn't walk from her bed to the door before, like two weeks later, she's walking around the block. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's how quick it happens. Right. And so, so yeah, just um, nutritionfacts.org, tremendous resource. Um, but eat, just eat more whole foods. If it doesn't have a package, I mean, we get everything we need. We can live off potatoes alone. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying you should. I'm yeah, not saying right. it's going to be pleasurable. And, and But I think it's very important to... Um, it's plant-based, not plant-perfect. Right. You know, and what there do you is, mean by that? well, plant-perfect, um, if you look at Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn of the, of the Cleveland Clinic, who was reversing heart disease in the 80s um, with terminally ill patients, yeah. heart disease patients, reversing it and curing it. And he has a very strict diet of no oil, no nuts. You know, oil is another thing that marketed as good, you know, coconut oil, and it's good for us. Olive oil, Mediterranean diet, you know, it's good for us. Um, that's not the truth. That's not the truth as I know it. That's not the truth as science presents it, presents it to us. But, but even I, you know, I'm carrying a spare tire because I've been eating oil, John. This is oil. I'm carrying, I'm carrying 12 pounds of oil on my gut right now. This is 100%. Eric and I were just talking about this morning. Yeah. Because um, I eat chips and guac right. and and potato chips. It's it, that's my my crutch. But yeah, yeah. but it's powerful. But so plant perfect is no meat, no dairy, no oils, no nuts. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, very little, uh, 5%, 10% of 5% of your, of your calories are coming from fat essentially, gotcha. okay. you know, where, where right now in our, you know, what's recommended to us is upwards of, you know, 30%, 35%, but really 10% um, is, is pretty ideal. Gotcha. Okay. Plant-based John is like you said, you know, I, sometimes I eat meat, but I'm mostly eating plants and I, and that if everyone were just do that, if everyone just went plant-based, Dr. T. Colin Campbell of Cornell, he estimates we would save $4 trillion a year in healthcare costs. Right. Which is 70%, 70% of the healthcare costs would be eliminated if, I mean, and this is a if, it's yeah, not going to happen overnight, you know, but if it were to happen overnight, um, yeah. that's the kind of impact, just switching the food. Right. And, 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 and when it comes back to Monsanto, you know, they claim they're growing food for people, but they don't. They grow food for animals. Right. Yeah. To feed into the system. To feed into the animal agricultural system. And then we eat the animals. But they're not growing food for people. Right. No. Right. And, and, you know, don't be, I mean, that's, that's, that's not their claim. And I mean, that's their claim, but that's not what's happening. They're right. growing food for the animal industry. You know, there's not rainforest being plowed down to plant corn for people and soy for people. It's, right. 
and, and cows aren't even supposed to eat corn. You know, that's the, that's the jazzer and all, you know, <laughs> they're set up to eat grass, John, you right, know, right. but which is interesting if you want to know where you want to go. But I was just thinking about the, the impact, the environmental impact of factory farming versus grass fed. Right. Well, the, uh, what's, what's the movie, uh, uh, Cowspiracy, right? Sure. Yeah. So they talk all about that. Well, it's interesting yeah. though that that the footprint of grass fed is actually bigger than factory farming because factory farming is very efficient. Mm. You know, you can have you can have a uh, hundred head per acre as opposed to one per acre, right. and so you can have the most hormone free, grass fed, uh, beautiful meat, but the environmental impact of that is still unsustainable. Right. We don't have the planet. We don't have the room on the planet to sustain that model. So, yeah, and, and it still does the same things to our bodies. You know, this meat with, okay, we don't have the hormones and, the, and the, the added antibiotics, which, you know, the biggest user of antibiotics in this country is the animal industry. Um, they're getting, and that's a big problem for humans. Yeah, yeah. totally. But, so overall, you know, you, you'd recommend to people uh, like finding the support and, and yes. know, like getting the right information. Information and, and is then, key. It's going to be, and that's the problem. You can't rely on the TV. You can't rely on people magazine, the ads on Dr. Oz, the, the doctors. I mean, yeah. Dr. Oz is actually starting to have some plant-based folks, which is tremendous. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's about finding the right people. And for me, those people are Dr. Michael Greger at nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Neil Bernard at Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, yeah. PCRM.org. Yeah. Uh, Dr. John McDougall, right up here in Santa Rosa. Um, yeah. He's been curing people for decades with the Starch Solution, and he has studies and with thousands of patients showing this. Yeah, um, yeah. so it's there. We just got to find it and find those people who can't find it. And that's where groups like the Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group in Michigan um, which they're, I don't know now, probably 1,500 members strong, but that's going to grow very soon, I think, um, rapidly. Um, and find a group to support you in, in the journey of health as opposed to maintaining your disease. Yeah. Yeah. And eat, eat legumes, eat beans, um, you know, it, and whole use foods. it. Eat whole foods, John, but I want to say that there's a transition period. And for, for the first year, maybe two, that I went plant-based, meaning no meat, no dairy, I didn't just eat sweet potatoes and rice and beans and legumes like I do now, lentils. No, no. I was eating, you know, the fake chicken patties, yeah. you know, the Q-corn and, and those things, which I think those products serve a purpose. I think they're transition foods. Yeah. And I think that that's important. If that, get, if that gets you through not having chicken for the first month, your body will start talking to you just as mine did. Um, right. And that's where the body speaks and says, okay, maybe we'll transition to something else now. Maybe, maybe I don't want this texture, vegetable texture protein in my diet, you know, and, right. and that's, but that's a journey. And, and I don't ever ask anyone or say to anyone, you must do this. You must, I hate labels, John. Yeah. You know, I had a fried egg yesterday. Yeah. I eat, I eat probably a dozen eggs a year. I mean, right. that, and that's as close to animals as I get. Right. Um, did I enjoy it? Could I have done without it? 100%. Um, but I did it, and, and I, I think that comes up to the plant-based. And if you can go from meat three times a day to meat once a week, that's winning. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, you, and you're going to feel that. And, and it's my hypothesis that you won't want the meat after right. after a certain amount of time. But have it. You know, yeah. eat like our grandfathers did. You know, my grandfather taught me, told me about the Depression. Just as he grew up, I mean, he grew up in the Depression, but not just as a standard of life. They ate meat once per week on Sundays. Right. They had a chicken stew, you know, and the rest of the week was potatoes, right. <laughs> yeah, and the things that that nourish us. That um, right. yeah, so it's 
Interesting. Yeah. Well, I know coming from my own personal experience, going towards the plant-based stuff, it was really easy for me because I had dialed in much more on being vegetarian before that mm. because I was turned on by, you know, this idea of like alkalinity in our body. Alkalinity. Kind of, yeah. Kind of maintaining like a better like pH balance in our blood just so we can operate at a better level. And you know, having gone through that experience and then I was just turned on to plant-based like during that time and mm. I was like, oh, well, I might as well make the jump. And so you're right, you know, there are these incremental steps along the way and it's not like, it's just unreasonable to think that we can, you know, go from eating meat two, three times a day to like dropping it all, you mm. know? And I think, uh, I think that's a really important point for people to understand if they, if they want to take a more proactive stance on their health and and just kind of, you know, all this stuff almost touches on being a more contributive member of like the planet, you know, and like taking care of it. Ooh, you know, I'm 100%, 100% because yeah. a happy, healthy human being is a more productive human being and yeah. a kinder human being, I would suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, if you're not in pain, you know, it's easier to get through the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just thinking about something though, it's on the tip of my brain. What's that? Just about tips, you know, and like how to get through, you know, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, I used to be hard line. I used to be like, when I first felt the power of, a, of, you know, what just food can do and how good I felt, I was, you know, I was like, oh no, eat organic 100% and like, but yeah, man, it's a, it's a journey. Yeah. It's yeah. a journey. If we, if we just take steps towards health, I mean, that's what it's about. If, if I read studies, John, that meat was good, I would be eating meat. I mean, if I, if I ate meat and cheese and I felt, you know, and I looked good and I felt good and my, my bowels didn't hurt, I would, I would eat meat and cheese. Right. So you, you got to be present with the, uh, the bio reaction, right? Well, I mean, that's, I would like to be present with the bio reaction. Yeah. But you got to have knowledge. I think just that milk does not do a body good. And we're indoctrinated to think that. So that's a tough, that's a tough, ta it's a tough ask. Yeah. And when you have someone who is addicted to cheese like me, um, you know, I like that case. I like those case of morphins. I, I like filling those receptors, buddy. Yeah. I like shoveling in a half gallon ice cream too, because it felt good. Right. Because it did <laughs> chemically, but I didn't realize that's why I was doing it. Right. You know, when I, when I was in that, um, inside of that, but realizing and reading about that and understanding, wow, well, that's just chemical, isn't it? Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, buddy, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, it's been super interesting, like diving more into your history. We've had a lot of conversations, like well, yeah. touching on stuff like yeah. this, but I've, I've never really gotten the whole spectrum of everything. And uh, it's great to hear what you're, what you're thinking about. And I definitely encourage you to like, you know, start talking to people more publicly about this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and really getting your, your ideas on there. Maybe you should have a podcast. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I love uh, talking to people, good people like you, John. So uh, I could definitely uh, be interested in that because, I mean, what better way is there to connect with somebody just over conversation and how little of that we get in our day-to-day -day life of just sitting out for an hour or two with a good buddy. Yeah. Um, so I think there's great value in that. Um, how do you think I could best uh, speak to the world in this message and this, you know, can I, can I pick your brain on, turn the tables on you for totally, a Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean... I think it would just be, you know, I'm such a novice when it comes to all this. I'm more of a, a spectator, uh, 
rather than an active participant. And I'd love to see you, you know, go into a more public forum and, and interact with the people who are really, mm. uh, who really have a lot of knowledge on the subject, like some of the people you brought up at the end here, and even just other people like yourself who are really uh, active participants in this movement and really uh, can speak to people intelligently about the subject. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like everyone uh, has unique characteristics about themselves that relate to other groups of unique people. And, you know, maybe it's not like, you know, Kyrie Irving and Damian Lillard aren't going to turn the whole world plant-based, but maybe there's like, you know, a thousand other people like you mm. uh, who all uh, can I can be identified with by other unique groups of people. You know what I mean? Like, you're from Detroit, you've traveled all over America, maybe you can be a voice for like, a lot of the people in the Midwest, because you can, you have a lot of like similar experiences mm. and, you know, you really kind of embody like that all American guy, you mm. know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I really encourage you to just get out there and talk to people about this and, you know, be respectful where people come from, which I know you don't have a problem doing because you, again, have a lot of similar experiences with people growing up eating a lot of meat and, and just thinking that was just the way life is going to go, you know, but you have kind of it wasn't it wasn't really for you it wasn't really even just like one moment where this all changed it happened over a period of time 100 percent. i just think uh you know it'd be really cool to see you do that you know yeah i appreciate that john yeah i that's been my i mean it's been my passion just even working farmers markets and, and music festivals selling the bars you know last couple of years it's been great just to connect with so many i mean yeah. hundreds if not thousands of people yeah. over the over the last few years so yeah I'm definitely going to continue. It's my, it's my passion. It's my life. Yeah. Awesome. All right, brother. All right. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate you. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Yeah, dude, this is sweet.